Conan, what is best in life? Motherfucker. This is the Fixopasm podcast in the year of the rabbit, episode one, Sword and Sorcery and the KLF. So um, on the return to regular programming, I decided to do a deep dive into Sword and Sorcery, which has fascinated me for ages. But I do acknowledge that that maybe makes the opening the year with John Hicks, the KLF, Chaos Magic and the band who burned a million pounds a bit of a puzzler. Hopefully I'll make it clear where they fit in the Sword and Sorcery oeuvre. This book was published in 2013, and it's an unofficial music biography, but it's so much more. Um, This is some of the blurb from the author John Higgs' website. Quote, They were the best-selling singles band in the world. They had awards, credibility, commercial success, and creative freedom. Then they deleted their records, erased themselves from musical history, and burnt their last million pounds in a boathouse on the Isle of Jura. And they couldn't say why. This is not just the story of the KLF. It is a book about Carl Jung, Alan Moore, Robert Anton Wilson, Ken Campbell, Dada, Situationism, Discordianism, Magic, Chaos, Punk, Rave, the alchemical symbolism of Doctor Who, and the special power of the number 23. End quote. I guess it also seems a bit on the nose to begin the 23rd year talking about Discordianism. It is a coincidence that I bought John Higgs' book after doing my Christmas shopping just because, you know, I, I bought myself a little treat. But Because it's non-fiction, I wasn't really thinking about it as a candidate for an episode, but it really grabbed me with a lot of different thoughts at once to do with Art as Magic, uh, Robert Andon Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy, Alan Moore, and in particular the gap in time that the KLF occupied and how that directly affected how their burning a million pounds would be received and what it meant to people. And um, this is a spoiler, they they don't know what it meant to them and and this actually haunts them. Now, I'm going to go through the arc of the book as I would any novel, and then I'll pick out the key themes that I want to talk about and how the time that the KLF operated in and what we did as role players is really interesting. Of course, I would say that because that coincided with my undergraduate years and the RPGs that really grabbed me, and that's why it's interesting to me. But put that aside, here we go. So this is... um rough pricey of the book, a synopsis, whatever. The book's arc covers 14 chapters split evenly over two parts, the first being rabbit ears and the second being horns. Um, Synchronicity is a recurrent theme in the story and I kind of find it amusing that not only am I reading this in the 23rd year of the millennium, it also happens to be the year of the rabbit. Anyway, the first half of the book is a kind of ascent, and it posits that what emerged from Bill Drummond and Jimmy Courtney's partnership might not have happened had Drummond not decided to reread Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy. Now, this first part covers Drummond emerging from punk era Liverpool in the company of um, Julian Cope and Echo and the Bunnymen, but it's not a linear biography at all. It dips through various time periods following the rise of Discordianism, the links to JFK's assassination, the um, the symbolism of which is likened to the beheading of a monarch. And the link there is the fact that the first five copies of the Principia Discordia were supposedly printed on Jim Garrison's Xerox machine. 
And this is the route the book takes into the whole Discordian narrative leading into Illuminatus, the source of the moniker The Justified Ancients of Mumu, which is incorrectly cribbed from Wilson because the Lard word is actually Mumu. Uh, that's three M's and two U's in, in the order you prefer. This first half of the book also brings Alan Moore into the frame because um, one of the places where they screened the K Foundation Burn a Million Quid was at Alan Moore's house in Northampton. And if there's a central point in this book, it's the burning of a million pounds on the Isle of Jura. And this is how the book's prologue starts. And it points out more than once that Drummond and Courty don't know why they did it. And that haunts them. Now, Higgs compares this to the actions of the Cabaret Voltaire, you know, a, a significant fixture in Dadaism that emerged at the start of the Great War. I'm, I'm skipping ahead to chapter 12 here with this quote. The six members of this group share with Courty and Drummond a sense of being haunted by what they did and the inability to explain or come to terms with their actions. I think this is really important. The K Foundation burned a million pounds and people reacted, but Drummond and Courty weren't elated, they didn't feel any catharsis, they just did it because it was something they felt they needed to have been done, and afterwards their inability to articulate why preyed on their minds. And Higgs doesn't posit a reason why, but he does point out the very strange era that was the early 90s. He argues that if the K Foundation had burned the money earlier in the 20th century, it would have been a surrealist or situationist piece of performance art. And if they burnt it later, it would have been an anti-capitalist or anti-globalist statement. As it was, the political climate they found themselves in was post-Thatcher and pre-Blair. And Higgs cites the relative irrelevance um, of George Bush Sr. and John Major and notes how this was culturally a kind of limbo. You know, music-wise, people readily associate the late 80s Stock Aiken and Waterman with Cool Britannia and the Spice Girls, which misses a whole chunk of time in music. But that time also included some really great albums, which may be viewed as the peak of the artist's work. So, for example, um, U2's Austin Baby is quoted, and uh, Primal Scream, Scream of Delica. Um, and I think he quotes a number of other ones that were also great albums. Higgs also discusses the concept of the short 20th century, which was defined by Eric Hobsbawm. This was Hobsbawm's response to the concept of the long 18th and long 19th centuries. And it starts with the Great War, and for the purposes of the biography, the Cabaret Voltaire and Dadaism, and it ends in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the KLF. So the argument is this early 90s is a kind of cultural waiting area to see what happens. To address this, Higgs draws Alan Moore back into the discussion and talks about art being magic and magic being art, as in creating something from nothing. He discusses the act of burning a million pounds as a significant magical event and a sacrifice in the true magical sense. You, know, you give up something of perceived value as an offering in exchange for something else that you're not sure what it will be. And, and essentially the K Foundation burned a million quid and are still waiting for an answer. And it's this unresolved thing that's haunting them. But because it's magical and art and beyond reason no one can put into words what the question is and so it's i don't know i feel it's a very pure magical act this sacrifice with no answer now the closest answer involves going back to illuminatus in one of those uh, blink and you'll miss it moments where the text reveals the true intent of the justified ancients of mumu and that's revealed as an opposition to the concept of money and specifically usury 
the way one profits through money lending, which is you know, the anathema to various ancient civilizations. Higgs points out that this is one the one thing that really pissed Jesus off and how so many religions have some kind of embargo on usury. Um, he notes how the modern positive interest economy embraces this practice and that's anathema to several ancient civilizations. And this opposition is in part against the magical entity of money which can be conjured from nothing according to the agreement of those who use it as currency. So this act of burning a million quid is the kind of counterspell and directly aligned with the origins of the jams in Illuminatus. There's so much in these later chapters that talks about why the Great War was significant in terms of the complete collapse of Victorian values and self-image, and it reinforces the concept of the short 20th century. And there's the JFK conspiracy stuff in the early chapters. And then there's the actual musical biography, which included Drummond's complex relationship with Julian Cope, um, the book The Manual, or How to Have a Number One the Easy Way, which is apparently read by popular artists years later, and also the importance of band names and how Drummond saw Echo, the haunted rabbit, looming out of Echo and the Bunnyman's first album, Crocodiles, um, which, by the way, is a good 20 years before Donnie Darko. It also talks about their initial success with The Time Lords and Doctor in the TARDIS, which takes us to the end of the first part of the book. And then there's the band's mainstream success at the start of the second part, and the Brit Award performance with Extreme Noise Terror, including um, a dead sheep and Drummond machine gunning the audience, and the subsequent dissolution of the KLF and the final phase of the K Foundation, where they kind of terrorised the art world. And so the book ends with a discussion on the burning of the money as magic and how and if it affected the world. There's this return to Alan Moore's idea space, um, and then Higgs gives the reader a choice either to accept the magical thinking that the Caliph did this incredibly powerful and significant spell as as posited by Moore. And so you can just skip to the epilogue and get the happy ending. Or you can read the rest of chapter 14. And that makes the final chapter both romantic and rational. Um, and that chapter opens with a discussion of the 23 enigma uh, and builds on the concepts of synchronicity being of two kinds. One is that you observe the number 23 in all things, and the other is that you use them. So, for example, in terms of the 23 enigma, which, you know, Burroughs was really interested in, um, one way of engaging with that would be you observe and note the occurrence of the number of 23 in all things, and you come to some kind of conclusion that it is significant. And the other one is that you use the number 23 as a kind of magical appeal to the magic and the reality you seek. One is, you know, less forced than the other, but both are valid. Now, if you don't skip to the epilogue, you get Higgs' alternative conclusion, um, which, of, of course, I, I didn't skip. And, and that is much more rational, but it's equally interesting and maybe even more important. It includes Robert Anton Wilson's take on quantum mechanics and his approach to... Um, multi-model agnosticism and Higgs writes this really important line um, quote uh, we habitually confuse our models with what they describe and this is central to Wilson's thinking now what he means by that is expressed in the longer passage a few pages on quote personally identifying with models that we don't realize our models is the cause of much discord an obvious example of this is the furious arguments that are up on the internet between people who, 
Although they don't realise it, are largely in agreement. These nasty vitriolic clashes occur between people who both agree that people should try to be nice to each other, that the economy is important, that freedom is a good thing and, should, and, that, and that family should be protected. What is happening is that both sides in the argument are using different models, typically different political models, and that those models are clashing in much the same way that the particle and wave models of light clash. These internet ranters fail to realise that they are confusing their models with the actuality or that the arguments are about the models, not about the thing itself. No true communication can occur in such instances. Higgs also argues the failure of postmodernism and the retreat to models of certainty, which have already been discredited, You know, an example being probably the collapse of Victorian certainty in the age of the Great War, which coincided with the Cabaret Voltaire and Dadaism, so he posits there is another option, which is Wilson's multi-model agnosticism in this quote. The other option was Wilson's multi-model agnosticism, where neither the sun will rise tomorrow nor the sun will not rise tomorrow would be confused with reality, the thing in itself. But both would be seen as models that could be assessed to see which was preferable in the current situation. In this example, the sun will rise tomorrow model appears to be pretty useful, while the alternative appears to be rubbish and should probably be put into storage. To simplify the argument with a, another quote, um, multimodal agnosticism is, quotes, a way out of postmodernism which doesn't lead to a belief that out of all the billions of people in the world, you are the only one who gets it and everyone else is an idiot. Um, which I paraphrase further by thinking it's a way to be sceptical about everything, including oneself, but rational at the same time. Um, and I don't see a lot of difference between that and science, to be honest. So it's right up my street. Um, all right, the last bit I want to mention in the book is this quote about the 23 Enigma. The reason the 23 Enigma is useful is because it demonstrates the amount of information that our models filter out. In actuality, the coincidental and synchronistic appearances of the number 23 are matched by coincidental and synchronistic appearances of every other number, even though our models fail to react to these. They're just models, after all, and models are significantly less detailed than what they represent. And I like this a lot. This skewers notions of magical thinking in favour of the multi-model agnosticism, except at the same time it doesn't. The magician still remains open to magical thinking, even open to two potentially contradictory thoughts at once. Um, now, I'm fully aware that when I draw themes out in the commentary, I'm also using my own models and biases to see the synchronicities which to others won't be there, or at least, you know, they're irrelevant. But on the other hand, I'm doing this consciously simply because I'm exploring the fiction rather than the objective fact to suit a different end. And the very last line, Higgs rightly quotes Wilson in the chapter's last words, Think for yourself, schmuck. All right, then, what does this have to do with sword and sorcery? Um, I'm going to start by saying one of the keys to the genre of swords and sorcery, I think, is the notion of a cusp. So to quote Robert E. Howard uh, from Conan, Know, O Prince, that between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the gleaming cities, and the years of the rise of the sons of Arias, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world like blue mantles beneath the stars. So this is what I thought of when Higgs described what the KLF did in Burning a Million Pounds, and how it might have been received either in the 80s or the 2000s, and also how they emerged at the end of the short 20th century, and magically ushered in the 21st century, uh, in, in Moore's words.
I think it's more. Um, the point here is that um, the trope of previous civilizations or even pre-human civilizations that collapsed is really well worn in terms of uh, sword and sorcery fiction. So, for example, the Hyborian Age is after Atlantis and Lemuria and before our own ancient history. Um, the Young Kingdoms happen after the decline of Melnibene, uh, but before Eric blows the Horn of Fate. And I think there's even a case for dying Earths, including uh, Vance and Wolf and Clark Ashton Smith's A Thick Cycle, although these are obviously standing between the former civilization and complete oblivion. But, you know, taking the Hyborian Age, we're invited to imagine ourselves being on the cusp of something exciting where the old has been lost or is possibly something dangerous and weird that you don't mess with but not yet into the future, into the, the world that is formed in the future. I think I remember the Smart Party podcast, they, they had to take on Forbidden Lands, where they noted that the game has this period of history involving some kind of red plague of mist or something. And they recently said, well, that sounds really exciting. Why are we not playing in that time, rather than in the time that the designers say, which is, you know, set the game after all that's passed, and there's been a disaster, and now it's a relatively calm period. Um, I hope I remember that correctly, and I think that's a very fair point. But I have this counterpoint. So, if the plague happens not in the memory of the current generation, but a few generations back, and in the meantime, the world's been rebuilt, then that event becomes you know, narratively more of a biblical flood that wipes away the influence of the old civilization and it allows the new one to grow free of baggage. And that's a useful tool because it doesn't negate the trappings of the civilization or even the philosophy, but it does remove its influence so that you can then have this vacuum that can be filled and you've got space for several small states to emerge, attempting to maybe emulate the structures that previously collapsed. Now, they might be balkanized states, they might be feudal city-states, but it means you also have spaces between them which are wilder, more tribal, more um, barbaric. So then the KLF connection here is the notion of the jams opposing usury, which, as previously stated, was anathema to many ancient civilizations. So let's say that you're on this cusp looking for what the next great civilization will be. And as these civilizations attempt to grow, some of them will become more hierarchical and operate on notions of positive interest. You know, they promote structures where people can accumulate wealth and then accrue interest at the expense of workers, turning into the modern systems we have today. But at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have societies which reject concepts of money lending. Now, is it right to call these barbarians? They're the counterpoint to the so-called civilization based on money lending and economic expansion. And we know that sword and sorcery loves order and chaos, but I think we need to stop thinking of these as cosmic absolutes and consider them as human societal structures and why law, therefore, isn't necessarily a good thing. Chaos is normally equated with the weird and the inimical to human life. But in this sense, in the sense of Wilson's Justified Ancients of Mumu, they are proponents of a natural order which opposes the establishment of artificial economic structures. A chaos and order creates the barbarian civilization dichotomy, but as I said before, it's a spectrum, and it's also not good and evil. But what it is, is ancient. 
So this genre appeals to me in part because it implies something from before history where um, humans had this completely different attitude to currency and the value of work and also the relationship with land. And this fundamental disagreement between barbarians and civilization should be, I think, front and center of a sword and sorcery setting. And if you want to iconify these with um, churches of law and chaos, that's an option. But I think that kind of lets the humans off. And I would really want to see these sort of the, these two poles expressed as human civilizations and different values and belief systems. So next, let's talk about sorcery. I think the terms I've just used imply that chaos equals a number of things, um, including the natural and spiritual world, which has to be in balance with human civilization. So chaos is magical awareness, which is where it also touches upon the weird and demonic and the wellsprings of magic. And it's also anti-establishment and therefore hated by lawful structures like organized religions, which are embedded in civilizations. Cults, on the other hand, are chaotic because they exist as a means of consciousness expansion for, for good or bad. Um, and they are also anti-establishment. So sorcery needs to be anti-establishment simply because it requires the imagination to connect with the weird. Lawful entities may then seek to control these magical forces, but they'll always be an uneasy and unstable situation. And you could represent this struggle for law to control and harness chaos as the um, conjuring and binding of demons, something which has to be codified in contracts and magic circles with very specific instructions. And this is maybe the only way a sorcerer can do magic within the constraints of a civilized and lawful society. And maybe they're not doing the weird rituals for the magic itself, but for appearances for the other lawful people around them to make it look like everything is contained. Or alternatively, maybe they have to go through the rituals to get into the mindset to break down the establishment's um, structures and codes that dictate that what they're doing, which is you know summoning demons, is not possible. And the shaman, who isn't constrained by society in the same way, has a way easier time accessing spirits and the weird and the and the wider magical world. But what all these sorcerers are doing is accessing idea space. You know the, the concept of demons and magic and bringing it forward as a magical act, creating something from nothing, which is how Alan Moore rationalizes the K Foundation's burning as this powerful magical event and a sacrifice because it directly touched on the idea of money which is you know the spirit of money in idea space anyway um i guess the last point i want to make is about the sword component of sword and sorcery which is a pretty tenuous link to draw i must admit you know i will i will note that drummond and courty do make use of some weaponry and the imagery of weapons notably drummond machine gunning the brits awards and the two of them driving around in brightly painted armored personnel carriers uh, blaring out abba but i think that's about as far as i could stretch it um i guess weapons and violence are disruptive and that's maybe the role that these images are serving in the klf as extreme disruptors and another expression of chaos. Um, but I'm also probably seeing what I want to. But I tell you what, you watch a few KLF videos and then watch the ritual scenes with Thulsa Doom and Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. I'm going to talk about some further reading 
that came to mind. And it's uh, rooted very specifically in a time period, the early 90s, which mean a lot to me because in terms of role-playing, those were my undergraduate years where I met friends who I still game with to this day. But it was also, I think, a really interesting period of time for the kind of role-playing game I like. And there's no better illustration of that than Jonathan Tweet's Over the Edge. And this game not only celebrated the mindset of Burroughs and Wilson, uh, 23 Enigma, Illuminati, Idea Space. Um, it also featured people who had rejected civilization to get to Alamaja. Um, they could have been running to something or running from something. But um, I can't think of a game of that era that encouraged this kind of individual backstory so clearly in a way that games before them just didn't do. I mean, I, I know that we uh, th there were some that attempted it, like um, Ghostbusters International, where they talked about these are the things that matters to you, and you put those on the character sheet. But on the whole, I kind of see uh, the over-the-edge system, which became Warp, the uh, wanton role-playing system. Uh, it was as, as a, a rejection of 80s conventions and the currency of role-playing. Uh, and it gave it a much simpler narrative focus. Um, and this concept is really commonplace now, but my sense is that Over the Edge and other early 90s games managed to occupy this cusp in time, and the same cusp in time as the KLF. And in a weird way, they magically ushered in the 21st century of role-playing games, indie games in particular. The other one we have to talk about is Vampire in the World of Darkness. And I would have to say, forget what Vampire became and focus on what it was in 1991. Um, the very first edition tried very hard to reject notions of character class. The clans were really understated. It was all about personal backstory and experience. And yeah, that didn't last long, but it was the version I played. More importantly, though, I think um, there was this initial trinity of games, Vampire, Werewolf and Mage. And this strongly implied the city and civilization as being a corruption, something out of balance, um, an unnatural movement towards order, of which the vampires were a symptom. And the counterpoint to this were lupines or werewolves. You know, they represented the wild and rural spaces. Um, now, you, you have to read how lupines are presented in first edition vampire. They're these monsters who are capable of sniffing out vampires miles away should they dare to step outside cities. They're not really alternative protagonists. They're much more like this invisible and unstoppable monster, um, like the one from It Follows. Um, the Sabbat as well, they're more like this disease of a city than an alternative, than an alternative protagonist. And vampires are rightly shit scared of both. I mean, that's the whole point about being a vampire in the Camarilla. Everyone hates you. You're, you are extremely powerful, but you have a very tenuous existence. Now, of course, the the problem is that the game system just didn't express that well at all. Mostly, though, you know, this, this vampire-werewolf dichotomy is so strongly resonant of the civilization-slash-barbarian dichotomy in Sword and Sorcery. And then, of course, once you get to Mage, you get concepts of idea space and uh, shared agreement on what reality was and the whole stuff about Awakening. The problem with all of this, of course, is, you know, the, the Splatbook Mill negated this fruitful void and destroyed the mystery. And it was it was great for a while. Um, but after a while, it was it was difficult to fight the um, fight the whole weight of the world of darkness, particularly with new players. 
Now, something else happened to me in the 90s, which was um, Grant Morrison's The Invisibles. Uh, and I've done it in Invisibles episodes, so I don't want to reiterate too much stuff. Um, within The Invisibles, you have the same natural chaos and unnatural order concepts and the idea that hierarchical structures, uh, in a Gnostic sense, are preventing humans from ascending. There's a really important bit in the very first arc where Tom Abedalum tells Jack that um, basically cities are some kind of disease of the world and they have crystallised reality in a particular way. And in the past we lived in harmony with our world and now we don't. And no one knows how the cities got in, but they are they oppose awakening and free thought. So, you know, that that was where I realised that the role-playing game I wanted to run was probably not what Mage was going to be. And you know why? It's probably because in both Vampire and Mage and probably the other World of Darkness stuff is the gradual accretion of splat books means that White Wolf itself was building up a, um, a hierarchy of the game world, which was very difficult to have any kind of ima independent imagination within. And I came to the conclusion I should should have been playing over the edge all this time. Oh, um. Anyway, um, as I've said, this occupies this space in RPG history that I feel acutely, and probably that other people do not feel this way. Um, I'd be interested to know from anyone else who is of a similar age how they feel about it. But I kind of feel like Alien D Second Edition is this kind of fallen civilization of something that went before and it is to be respected and appreciated. And then afterwards there's this diverse 21st century of gaming. Um it includes indie games, it includes the modern iterations of Dungeons and Dragons, and of course a very diverse range of um modern games. And it's a obviously now is a great age to be playing role-playing games but i i feel that much like the klf existed for a very short period of time in a period where people were negotiating these questions um over the edge represents a similar thing to me in terms of the chronology of role-playing games of course i'm choosing to view it that way but i feel there's kind of a magic spell going on there anyway I think that's what I want to say on the subject, because, you know, it's quite dense and heavy and it's also extremely subjective. But if I'm taking anything away from this thought exercise that I've gone through, it's three things about sword and sorcery. One, it's the ancient that is important. And the ancient is intentionally divorced from our modern ways of thinking. And if you want to present sword and sorcery, you have to get into that mindset where this struggle between establishment and freedom is actually much more out in the open and uh, people are more free to choose and the second is um, sorcery all accesses the same stuff it's just the way that people dress it up and then finally the sword part is entirely about disruption and all of those I'm, I'm sure you're listening to this and you think well all of those are so obvious Ralph but I am going to try and keep them in mind um, as I go through this com this continued dive into sword and sorcery and what it actually means to me. The problem is that um, I feel much more interested in, in sort of what is seen as sword and sorcery 
uh, than I can properly articulate as to why it is different from, say, Tolkien. And it's not just the uh, M. John Harrison stuff about the great clomping foot of nerdism. I think it is something else that is slightly differently articulated, something that's closer to what has been sometimes called the, the energy of Conan and those that other earlier pulpy weird tales and, and why they work. Anyway, uh, this is the first step on a journey, not a conclusion. So thank you so much for listening. I'll tell you what, if you are interested in this kind of thing and you want to comment about it, um, you can leave comments on the website. You can also reach out to me. And if it works in the time frame in which I'm producing these episodes, I may devote some time to it in later episodes to discuss concepts and counterpoints and additional anecdotes, whatever you like. Um, I'm open to it. But thank you for listening. Fictoplasm Podcast. Words by Ralph Lovegrove. Music by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at fictoplasm.net. Music